Listener Production. Are you tired of not getting what you want in life? I used to feel the same until I learnt the techniques of manifestation. Let me take you through step by step how I manifest so you can start living the life you had always dreamt for yourself. All the info on my Manifest Your Greatness course is in this episode's show notes or you can go to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Sarah Blondin is a storyteller, author and meditation guide loved by millions. Her work focuses on inviting us to come back home to our hearts and the inner landscape of our lives. Sarah reminds us that so much of the human experience is a conversation between loss and celebration and understanding the puzzle of being ourselves, of rising to our best capacities and gifts in all of our complexity and strangeness. In this heartfelt conversation, Sarah and I discuss moving through suffering, navigating the way through negativity to love, and finding groundedness and connection in our busy lives. This is the same thing we do with heartbreak. I'm not gonna have my heart broken. And it's like, yes, you are. When that happens, how are you going to relate to it? What does your conversation with heartbreak look like? Do you become a bigger person because of it or do you become a smaller person? So you have a choice. You are a conscious participant in your life's unfolding. And when heartbreak comes, which is inevitable and non-negotiable, you have a very important choice to make. What is the conversation I'm having with this? Does it make me smaller or bigger? And how can I find a way to keep my heart open? I'm Sarah Grimberg. This is a life of greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Sarah Blondin has written a new book called Heart Minded, How to Hold Yourself and Others in Love. In its essence, this conversation shares actionable ways to celebrate your lived experience, amplify your awareness and elevate your consciousness. My hope is that Sarah's words allow you to come back home to the innate essence of who you truly are. Sarah Blondin, I want to start at the beginning. Thank you for joining me. Tell us a bit about your upbringing because I know that you grew up in Canada in quite a rough neighbourhood. How did you know that? I did research. (laughs) I was like, is there research about that? I did. I was born in Moose Jaw, a really small town in Saskatchewan, actually. And I was a pastor's daughter. So my dad was a pastor. I don't remember anything about it. He left the church a few years into my life. And then we moved to Winnipeg and um, we lived in a community called Grain of Wheat, which is, I realize now that I think it was some kind of a commune-ish vibe. Sounds a bit Amish. Yeah, (laughs) a little bit Amish, yeah. (laughs) And I didn't realize this till after. I was like, why was I always around all these kids and running through church basements and 
but it was also in a really rough kind of neighborhood where we actually lived right beside, I still don't even know what it was, Sarah, but it was a house um, where a lot of people who struggled with addiction would be in and out of. And those were my neighbors as a little kid. And I remember walking to school in the morning and there was even one morning like bloody footprints yeah. with someone's shoe and needles with blood in them. That's the foundation of what I what I remember as my introduction to the world. And I remember standing up in my attic one day and seeing this one man going into the our neighbor's house and he was falling into the snow and he was laughing and he was clearly intoxicated, but I was just this little innocent kid for the first time confronting or at least realizing that there was a tremendous amount of hurt and hurting people. And it really confused and terrified me when I was really little. So I think really early on, my nervous system kind of adjusted to the world in a way that said, this isn't safe. There's a lot of scary stuff and it's not addressed. It's not really spoken about. And it's just kind of held in the body. And I remember having a babysitter over once and a man tried to break into the house and oh my God. his hand was reaching through the door and I'm just this little kid. And I'm like, what is all of this? Now that I look back at that upbringing, I had this very rich community life with so many members of the community that loved and cared for us with all these wonderful children, but it was juxtaposed with this incredibly dense mm. suffering world. And I think a lot of that has to do with why and what I speak to as a way to kind of go back to that little girl who saw and felt all of it and felt like there was like this incredible negligence. Nobody spoke about it. Mm. So it was almost as if my little self decided I'm gonna say something and that's when, you know, if you look at your life in this past thing, you can kind of see it unfolding and how it unfolded. And it was just me witnessing the pain of the world and wanting to make language for it in a world that I could sense there wasn't really language for. It had a lot to do with how I am today, for sure. Why do you think your parents didn't talk much about it? And especially considering that you lived so close to what sounded like a halfway house or something like yeah. that. And they didn't at all want you to know what was going on there or they were shielding you maybe. Now becoming a mother, I can see how flippant adults can be with pain or something hard. I can see how we can just dismiss it because we've seen it so much and we don't really understand how how that would feel for yeah. someone who's just being exposed to it for the first time. I just really sympathize and empathize with all parents always. I never think they're doing anything wrong because I can just understand the level of to live in a conscientious way with your children requires a level of mastery that I think many of us aren't really aware of. Mm. They may have tried to talk to me about it, whether I was able to absorb it or not. I don't know. Talking to my sons now about certain things where, you know, I'm like, I'm going to help them with this understanding. And I just see it go in one ear and out the other. Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> you know, there's a level of that happening as well. So, so much of our suffering and the way we see the world is built at such an innocent time. And it's unavoidable and not preventable, no matter mm -hmm. how good of a parent you are. This is part of our process of evolution that we actually can't get out of. 
And that's why I think we're becoming more conscious in our evolution and kind of waking up to all the ways that we're perceiving our world and our life. We have to then reparent yeah. ourselves. It's interesting when it comes to our children, because it's always like, I always have this fine line of wanting to tell them what's going on and not pretending that someone hasn't died or whatever the circumstances are, but at the same time knowing that they are children and that you want them to live in that kind of happy bubble to an extent, it can be quite challenging to navigate. I have said stuff to them or they've seen stuff and I can see that's upset them or affected them in a way where they say they're fine but they might be holding on to it mm -hmm. and then I think, oh, God, have I, like, affected them forever or something like that? But no, no, they're the answer okay. Is yes, you have. <laughs> I'm like, uh-oh, too much information or they were exposed to too much oh, there. that's going to be with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd love to know, like, how you kind of manage that. I don't manage it well, Sarah. Yeah. I have been very afraid of death in my life. So that's been a constant companion for me, especially coming into my 40s. <laughs> I just turned 40 and it's reached a new level. So I realize we have a very death phobic culture. So I've been trying to talk about death in our household as if it's just part of the process of our life instead of like, <gasps> they've passed away or they're gone now. You know, I'm like, they die, we die. Yeah. I've tried to bring that conversation into our household just because there is that blindfold and that veil we're trying to protect our children. In the meantime, like, I think our children are extremely capable of... Yes holding that information. I think some of the wisest conversations I've had are with my four and five-year-olds, you know? Yeah. It's incredible when you do come to them with a very honest and true conversation about something that's hard or real about the human experience, how they will absorb it in a way that's like, okay. And I think for me, the biggest thing that I've tried to do is show them that joy is always with pain and suffering, love, loss. I show them they always come together. I do that at night with my son. It's like, well, pain's here, but it comes with love or mm. life. And we just see that these two things are always going to be side by side. So I try and give them the footing or at least the foundation that says, I'm not going to wish for this uh, reality that's void or only one way. I'm going to teach them how to stand within both. Mm. There's no way of doing that without having really honest conversations with them. And I, and to be quite honest, I don't protect them from much information because I believe they are so able yes. and capable so long as they have both perspectives in their mind. Yeah. Like there's no bad, there's no wrong. We're just humans. Mm. And this is how humanity looks. Now we're conscious. It, yeah. it, that's such a beautiful thing. And I feel like I probably do the same thing and... When I think back to some of the most beautiful moments I have with my children, especially if you want to get into your heart centre, that's the thing that I go to to think about the most. And there happened recently, I always think of this one thing that happened a couple of weeks ago. The lady across the road from us died and she was older. She got unwell and, and she passed away. And we obviously the kids knew her because she was very friendly and would always call out to them across the road when we would see her and she'd bring biscuits and stuff over. She was divine. So it was really sad when she died because she was a lovely lady and we knew her well. And so the night that she 
was basically dying, I said to my son, we looked out the window in his room, it was dark, all the lights were turned off and he's got these gorgeous kind of blinds and we opened them and we could see her house and then she just lives with her husband. And I said, you know, I think Poppy's dying. That's her, That was her name. We should say mm-hmm. a prayer for her. And so we did like a silent prayer, both of us. Mm-hmm. There was no tears or anything like that. But in my mind, Sarah, that was one of the most beautiful moments I think that we've had together. Standing in the dark, looking at this lady's house and wishing her on her way. And she did. She died that night. Mm. I think what you're saying is true. We can't always shield them from everything and having these moments with the sadness and the beauty together are just, they're just so meaningful. And the way that he met you, right? Without like, it wasn't like you had to drag him. You didn't have to explain anything. They just intuitively understand it. Yes. It doesn't make it less hard, but they have a way of um, being with life that I feel most adults can't access anymore because they're not so entrenched in this right, wrong, like, dislike yet. They're kind of like, okay, so how do we hold this experience? How do I be with this? Yeah. And I love that so much about having babies is that I get to go all the way back to, you know, what I have and have had inside my own being and that I believe is still with us. We can still access that kind of grounded, loving presence. Yes. That's just, you know, kids just go with it. Yes. They're like, all right, we're going, we're living. I want to know, obviously, then you went through school, which you mentioned wasn't the easiest for you. And there was a time then you kind of fell into a rougher road, even a depression. Can you tell us a bit about that? I've had a few epochs of depression in my life, but After I finished school, I moved to Vancouver to be with my husband, who I married six months after. But I was really struggling to find out what my purpose was. And I'd always had this deep sense of wanting to give and be in the world in the best way possible. But there was no answers. It was a really like a treacherous trudging, you know, everything kind of scratched some version of an itch, um, but never felt satisfying or fulfilling So I worked as an actress and a journalist and everything just felt like I wasn't full. It didn't feel right. Every day around two or three o'clock in the afternoon, I would end up on the floor, basically crying in on the concrete floor of my condo, just with this desperate longing inside that I couldn't find a way to get to. It's just a longing. And to be in a state of longing is pretty, uh, what does it provoke? It provokes everything. It's just an excruciating binding of the body and you can't find your way. But somehow something was being understood in that process. And I and I love these periods of my development because they really do hold something sacred in them. And I found that those moments and epochs of depression have really been for me a way that I almost see it as we bind ourselves up in order to go into ourselves to find our own key. It's almost like it's part of our process of reunion and discovering who we really are. So I don't see these thresholds as really horrible places to be in. And sometimes when people or friends of mine go into states of some heavy neurosis or something, I'm like, oh, yay, like you're in that place. You're in that very fertile ground, right? You're on your back. Mm you're going to find out who is catching you once all of these veils are gone. 
it's going to be you. You know, I really see how beautiful those periods can be. I'm going to just say, I'm not trying to say they are not hard. I've been, depression is very different than anxiety. And I've had all of those kind of initiations, I call them. But what really changed for me was when I got pregnant with my first son and six months in, I just realized I couldn't endure city life anymore. My body was like, we have to go. I couldn't speak to anyone. I couldn't do my usual things. It was like something was breaking in my psychology. It was like, I can't do it. So in, you know, haste, my husband and I moved to the country and got rid of our place in Vancouver. And I was on a dirt road with apple trees and tumbleweed but (laughs) that was probably one of the hardest transitions of my life uh, because I think that was kind of the first real meeting of myself and when I say meeting of myself I mean myself without my friends or my associated kind of lifestyle to confirm it for me it was like me in a hollow windy road who are you who are you who are you um, and not only that, you're growing a child and you're you're having all this new development happening in so many arenas. So it was a really, really scary time, to be honest, and scary because you have no ground. So that ground gets taken away and that can be very disorienting. And I find that to be, those are the hardest places to be in when you have no way to orient yourself. Your tools aren't working, your things aren't working. So you really have to find a way to um, be in conversation with those places. And I think that is when I really, I had always written, writing has been my thing, but that's when I became a seriously devout writer. The writing was a way for me to at least help the pain that I was in and the confusion and the contradictions that I was facing have expression. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like, Things were coming into the mind, the body, everything. And I think when we get into a lot of trouble is when we have no means of getting that stuff out. So I I just wish everyone would flow right. And that's my main tool because it is such a beneficial tool in having the flow out. So I would write every single day, no matter what it was that I was going through. And that's what everybody knows as Live Awake now, which is essentially a lot of my writing from those very personal times where I was in my own version of hell. And what I noticed as I would purge my writing every time I would face something that was excruciating, I I came to find this incredible, poetic, loving voice. Mm it's almost as if this is the fascinating thing. And this is what I, you know, I I found what I consider the voice of my heart or my umbilical cord to the divine or whatever you want to call it. It was my voice. It was not something outside of me. That's also something I want everyone to be aware of. It's you you're Mm. looking for all the time and it's you, you meet, but it's almost as if that part of you in order for that deeper, more wise, more robust, more able-bodied self to come forward, it has to know that you're there with both feet. Um, So that's why I think devotion is really important or having a practice that you're really, really doing because your heart knows it's worth and it will open to you with the level of sincerity I think you bring to it. For me, it was either, you know, collapse and not be able to be a mother and, and go through this change, or it was rise and become a bigger person and find out who you really are. 
that's what my writing was for me. It was like, you just have to keep teasing out this voice to keep you alive. Keep going to find that voice. And the voice was always on the other side of the confrontation of the pain. It wasn't in avoiding. It wasn't in skirting around. It wasn't meditating it away. It was like, what's here? Tell me what's here. And that tell me what's here is where the power lies because that's when you actually have to say what's really there. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't be in denial in any way. Say everything. Your greatest, ugliest thoughts. Mm. And then that's when the thing starts to break. The shell of that monster breaks. And you find you're still there. There's this beautiful John O'Donoghue quote that says, though the darkness may be deep, not a hair on your head will be touched. Mm. And that's really what I learned. It's like the darkness was deep, but not a hair on my head was touched. And the more I met that, the more I developed this resilience is what I think is the greatest gift of confronting our darkness. Your pain doesn't go away necessarily. Your pain just changes. The conversation changes. You're less afraid of pain. And that's when I think the magic really starts to happen. That's when you start hearing and feeling yourself as your own savior. Mm. And that's when life gets a lot more magical, Mm. not pain-free, just more magical. Mm -hmm. I think that's so true. And you so beautifully said by you, it's, the knowledge that also that we all go through pain, I think that people think that some people are like immune to it and mm-hmm. it's not true. It's mm-hmm. absolutely not true. Every single person, doesn't matter how famous, how rich, everyone experiences mm-hmm. pain and everyone's pain's different. And it is sitting with that pain and working through it and like your, your beautiful words, how that is almost the richest moment where we can lift the veil and know that there is mm. some sort of joy on the other side. And you spoke about it earlier and it's something that I've always, I've written about it a bit as well. And, you know, I sometimes struggle with it, even though I know it is that whole dichotomy of life, the yin and the yang, the darkness and the light. And, you know, if you believe that we come from source, oneness and love and whole, and we're formed into these bodies, and then that's when the dichotomy begins. And without one, we wouldn't have the other. So that's what makes them so special and intertwined. Mm -hmm. But it can be so hard. It can be so Mm -hmm. hard. And when we go through those moments of pain, sometimes they feel like they'll suffocate you forever. And I'd love to know when you were on the floor, those moments, how you got yourself up in those like exact moments. Mm, I had to, I had to get myself up. I was a mother at that point. So I had to be that, I had to get up. And I think that's the really incredible thing about having a family is that it's less negotiable I think when we're on our own, we can be a little more complacent and we can lay on the ground for longer than we need to. But the whole motherhood thing just was like, what, what's what you have to get up? I want to get up. After I had my book published, I went through another one of those epochs, but it was with anxiety and panic this time. And that's a different type of visitor that I feel is a lot more challenging to get up from um, and to live with because it doesn't go away. So it's really, you know, with depression, I could at least like, you know, I'd get moving my body or I'd cook a good meal and it would kind of quiet down a little bit. But with anxiety and panic, it was this chronic 
sense of dread and terror going through your body. And that's enough to rattle anyone to a point of, you know, I, re I remember just looking at my husband and saying, like, I need help. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't hold this. And he was just like, okay. And he would take me out under a tree and he would lie with me as yeah. I shook. And because when you're in a panic attack, your teeth are shaking and you're rattling. And he just said, okay, let it take you. Like, what's it going, what's it going to do? So he would help me lay there instead of, you know, I am not meaning to, if you need medication, man, I understand. But I had the type of support that was able to say, let's ride this out together and see what happens. And I learned so much through it. And the biggest one I learned, uh, thing I learned was um, just to keep nursing what you want to be true for your life, the story of your life, just keep nursing that. So I just remember trudging through the snow with all of the weight of the world inside of my body. And I would go up to my little space and I would write, I would do my process of what's here, what's here. I would even meet the voice of peace and that wouldn't even work. Those are the scary times when those things don't even soothe you. But I had a really beautiful experience when I was in the depths of that, where I just, and with that panic and anxiety, I was having a tremendous body pain. It's not ironic. It all makes sense now that I'm out of it. I can see how these are really important initiatory kind of phases of my life where I was going from a smaller version to myself into a more open and available mm. one. I was growing. I was making a big leap from my private journal entries into the world of like, okay, I'm going to serve in a bigger way now. And that was like, not before you get rid of this huge pain body, right? And, or at least confront this pain body. So that's what I believed I was really doing. So I had that perspective in mind. And I think that's a really important thing to have too, is, is the right perspective. I'm a pioneer. I'm being forged in the fire of my life. I'm willing to do this. Mm. I'm willing to. And I wish we just had this more sacred and holy culture of threshold and phases of development where it's like, okay, you're going to go through this now or something similar. And, and this is how you walk with it. But I had this experience where I was lying on uh, the floor of my cabin and I, I would do Joe Dispenza every day. So that's what really got me through, specifically where he just says, nowhere, no one. Mm. And you just lie there and you go into the stars. And that was the only thing that would really let my nervous system stop panicking. So I would make sure that that was happening every single day. And that would give me enough strength to get up again. But I would still get up and walk with the panic and the anxiety. It was So it was just a, a matter of like finding places mm. that I could regulate and then being willing to walk with it as many days as it wanted. And I remember saying to myself, if this is here every day, how does this change my relationship with my life? How does this change me? Pretend this doesn't go away. That question was like, okay, I have to make friends with you. Mm. I have to learn to be with you in a way that doesn't kill me. Mm. So all those perspectives, but I was led to have those kind of insights through my practice of writing, right? It was like, but I was lying on my back one of the days and I said goodbye to myself. I said goodbye to the Sarah who was so afraid and I let her go and I mm. felt viscerally her leaving my body. Wow. And it was one of those magic once in a lifetime kind of awakenings, I think. Um, and I got up from that and I was walking to the house and I, I just felt so radically different. And 
there was no self-criticism anymore. Certain things were gone. I would yell at my kids, but I didn't feel bad about it. It was very bizarre. It was almost <laughs> like I had detached in a way and I was driving and I was laughing because I was like, who's driving? Like, it was so funny. Wow. And I even had a panic attack when I was in bed and I was like, look at her having a panic attack. It's like you were the witness. Yes. I totally moved into witnessing. It was incredible because I realized so much of our suffering comes from like, you just totally are tangled yes. into this thing. But I was having a panic attack. I didn't care. My witnessing was like, oh, that's sweet. Like it didn't, it was, it's like it couldn't touch me. I really withdrew from the world. I didn't really want to talk anymore. I didn't really, I wasn't mad. I was just like, I don't have anything to say anymore. And I remember growing more and more distant from my husband and like family members and just feeling like really like, huh, weird, detached and despondent in a way, but very peaceful. And then I remember some part of me, I don't know what made me do it, but I was just like, I think I want to be in my humanness. I want to be in my humanity. And I kind of felt like I agreed to move down back into the you know, the meat yeah. and grit of humanity, of my humanity. Cause I was like, I like that now. I understand how I love that. I understand how I love that. I remember just being really grateful for having had the experience because I, I did gain a tremendous amount of like perspective now when I'm going through things. But I realized also a really important piece was like, I love being alive and I love being a human and I love being in the chaos and the divinity of it. And I want to explore it more. I just remember being like, I want to explore it. I want to find words for it. I want to find language and I want to help others find that too. I'd love to know where you met the divine in those times. It's so fascinating to feel where anxiety and depression and, and all of that lives. It's almost like in a, it's in your body is kind of cocooned in this frequency of terror. But when I would get really still and quiet and lie on my back and kind of let those things settle a little bit, that's when I really realized I was not this small entity. And to me, that was divinity and it was grace and it would hold you up and it was in your body you contain it I mean the real gift of being alive is to find that embody that now and to carry that with you you know when we're crying out to God or for help what we're actually crying out for is our own ears to hear ourselves Martin Prechel I think I'm probably saying his name wrong but he said one of the biggest griefs we ever faced is when we lost the mother's heartbeat when we were born and when we were split from that but I think that was the initial grief, you know, the rupture where we we separated from this like womb of warmth and, and support and we were on our own without the drama anymore, without that rhythm. But I think the whole point of that is to come back and have our ear so close to ourselves in this human experience and everything that we go through that we find our own drum, something that's closer even than our mother. But I think, again, we're not really pointed in that direction. Like you're, you're, you're here not to call out to anyone. You're here to call in. So I always found the divinity or the sense of being held, even in my terror, even with that still there, I still felt held. And I remember another time where it was really intense and I, it was my first time teaching. 
And I was terrified. And every night it was like, you can't teach in the morning. All night I was terrorized by this voice. Like you're not, you're terrorized, terrorized, terrorized. And I remember just like the third or fourth night of no sleep, still waking up to teach. And I remember just giving up, but like truly giving up. I just remember saying, okay, another night of anxiety, fine. But it was such a deep surrender that it just went like a dragon evaporating. And I had this really beautiful dream once where I, I had this man, I have this man who shows up in my dreams sometimes. Oh, wow. He's been there since I was little. It's really beautiful. But he showed up and he took me through this space where he, and first he brought me to a group of a hundred or so monks dressed in orange. And he said, sit in front of them. And then they all started blessing me. So there's a hundred monks dressed in wow. orange, blessing me, blessing me, hands blessing me. And then he said, okay, now come over here. And he walked me to this big corral. And in the middle of the corral was a bull and it was totally in flames. And he had steam coming out of his nose and he was kicking up dirt and sand. And the man said, now walk toward the bull. And I said, no, I'm not going toward the bull. And the bull's fire, like terrifying. Walk the bulls, walk towards the bull. Slowly, I kept walking toward the bull, walking toward the bull. And I finally came up to this bull on fire, spitting smoke, and it just disappeared. So I took that to mean, I love dreams and dream tongues yeah. so much, but I took that to mean there are forces loving and praying over you, even though you can't see them. And now your job is to go toward every one of your fiery bulls and to see that they just puncture, they puncture. And that's what happened to me that night of the panic was just like a, 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 such a deep surrender that every part of me let go and everything disappeared and I was in peace. Hmm. Total peace. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It reminds me, I was just telling you I was at a, a retreat and I got some news when I was there that wasn't ideal. So I was kind mm -hmm. of like working through that in my head whilst being at this retreat, which potentially is a good place to be, I suppose. But at the same time, <laughs> some in my head also said, I just want to go home. Yeah. Even though I didn't, it was all a bit much. And I was doing a meditation and it was so... Oh, the anxiety that came on Sarah was so full on. I was struggling right. to breathe properly and right. you know what it's like when it comes on. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in meditation and I'm getting it. God help me. <laughs> but it, it was fine after the meditation. So it must have just come on at that right moment, right? And right. when all of the anxiety symptoms were happening, all I could do, and I, as you said, just surrendered rather than controlling it and being angry and feeling my body get really hot, all I said to kept saying to myself is, there's always more love. There's always mm. more love. And mm. all I did was concentrate on that voice. There's always more love. And as soon as I did that, after repeating it again and again and again in my head, and this meditation would have been two hours long, I just came out of that meditation and I felt fine. But it was... It was so scary whilst I was in it. Like you explained like the bull flames and the this and the mm. that. And I thought, oh God, this is bloody horrendous to then be moved to such grace. But it was the release of me just going, don't focus on it. Focus on something else and move into that state of peace and love and know that there is always more love. There always is. And now I really believe that. So yeah. now if I have panic, which I do, but it's like, it's more subtle. I'll just be like, okay, I lie in my bed and it's like, 
part of me is like, get up, move around, go walk, go sit up, turn the lights on, get these feelings out. And then I go, no, a voice just says, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go anymore. Mm. There's no running, just ride it. Mm. And then it, sure enough, it is like a wave. It's just a wave. Mm. It's just a wave. And you're scared the whole time. But I also have this storehouse now of resilience from not running away from that panic and anxiety, from not medicating, yes. from not subduing myself, that I have this resilient store. And now I'm like, okay, okay, mm. okay. Because every time I have said okay to you, to whatever this thing is in me, I find this incredible spine of just trust and faith. And I think these moments are there to show us how to say yes to our life. Yes. And not just yes in the way like, oh, yes, if I get the perfect partner, husband, children, blah, blah, blah. Yes to everything. I'm going to have to be with my parents as they're dying next. I realize that's my next. Mm. My parents are aging. That's my next kind of hard. Yes to all of this. Yes to my children being repeatedly sick. Yes, 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 yes. Mm. I think that's the real gift of those those thresholds is how do you say yes inside of this? And can you find your genuine yes? Yeah. Your non-conditional one. Sarah, as you mentioned, you've got your book Heart Minded, which is just absolutely phenomenal. And you've got a beautiful poem within that, in the epigraph mm. of it. And it's all about coming back into your heart. And I... I'd love you to read it. The moment you separated from your heart, the moment you closed, quieted, pushed away, turned from, disowned, lost sight of goodness, the exact moment you began to splinter from love, a part of you began doing everything in its power to bring you back. Just as a mother who has lost her child will never tire of standing at the ocean's edge calling out her beloved's name, sending prayers for survival, blessings in bottles out to sea. She, your heart, began to do the same once you were set adrift. You are never lost, dear one. For the moment you divided, your heart began doing everything in its power to bring you home. I love that one. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it so brings a tear to my eye every single time. But I think the reason that I just find it so beautiful is because it's so true. It's so true. It's We were all born with this beautiful heart that just knew mm. and knows everything. And then life, like you said, growing up and seeing seeing life, everyone sees life. They see the darkness and... But the heart always knows, like I said, there's always more love. It's always mm -hmm. there to bring us home if we actually listen to it. And if we allow ourselves to go into that space where we can hear it, it's always mm -hmm. there. It doesn't matter how much anxiety and depression we have. It doesn't matter what we're going through. Like what I want people to know is it's there. It's there. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> That's all I want people to know too. It's like, it's right here. We're okay. We're okay. Things might not be okay, but we are. We are. And, you know, we're so wise and we're so wise and it's just waiting inside of us. It's just it's so beautiful. I just want to tell this other story. I 
was at this retreat and there's this thing where you heal people. And again, I told you I had the bad news. So, you know, these persons lying in front of us, we're in groups of eight and we don't know what's wrong with them. And you put your hands out and you just give them love, right? And I felt in myself like, I, I just feel like I don't, I don't have, have the love to give. Yeah. Like, and I was trying so hard and I thought, mm. oh God, this poor person's got me as one of their eight and I don't even really have that much in me, but I'm going to shoot darkness <laughs> into them. I felt, I felt awful. I was like putting my hands out and I was like, I don't know how much is coming out. And then when we're told to put our hands back on our heart and give the love no. back to ourselves, oh my God, Sarah, <gasps> it was the most incredible feeling of love I think I've ever had in my life. And I knew at that moment that there was love that was coming out of my hands because when I put it back on my heart, all I could see was my family in front of me where my eyes were closed. I saw all my members of my family that I love so dearly in front of me and I nearly fell asleep to that feeling of love. It was so intense, so beautiful. And what I'm trying to say is, I didn't think I had it at that moment. I was giving it to that woman and I thought it's like I've been sapped of all love because of this news. But then Mm. when I put it back on me, I found it again. It was there. This is the thing, right? So even when your greatest moments of despair, you know, I, I remember talking to a dear friend having like just a horrible time, like just so much panic and anxiety, sleepless nights, like really, really heavy job, so much responsibility on top of that. And I remember thinking like, you can't see what I see is being refined in you. Yes. You can't see how much more compassionate and beautiful you're becoming as my friend. You can't see all the ways that I see this like carving back these walls in you. You can't see that. He couldn't see that. The only thing I could do was hold in my knowing and how I saw what was happening. And our minds, when we're in the biggest states of suffering, will be so ruthless Mm. and try and trick us into believing that we aren't full of this, just full to the brim. But I think that's the gatekeeper. Mm. Whatever feeling you felt like, I don't have anything, that's your mind your body, your heart, the organism that is you is operating on a totally different level. And I saw that so much in that witnessing experience was there is something else doing me, living me, that's not attached to these painful things, that's Mm. kind of separate and operating on its own. And I also love that story because what it says to me as well is that when we show up, no matter how drained we feel or no matter how depleted we are with the intention to heal and support Mm. another light, the ricocheting of that, the comeback to you was almost tenfold. And that to me, again, is another testament to like, you do this work on you. Mm. You change everyone, not even by what you actually put through your hands, but your sound, the environment you carry. You can hear a million different spiritual teachers or guides saying, things and only one of them you'll feel. Mm. And I think the difference for that is how deeply they've integrated their experiences. We can regurgitate all of these things, but until we've met with our own flaming bulls, we won't have that kind of burned into us. But it's so beautiful. I yeah. love that story. <laughs> it's well it, it made me think of this beautiful poem that you had and I want to talk about 
the power of the heart and love because I think that is the divine force that brings us all together. And I want to know your experience for people that have gone through betrayal or hurt or, Mm. you know, we've all kind of had our own version of that. How do you suggest that they find their heart again, find love again? I would suggest a few things. Number one is always a perspective, the right perspective to have when you're going through something. And one thing I think we kind of walk around believing is that the heart can be broken and the heart is like this thing that breaks and we're devastated. But what I've come to know, my relationship with my heart is my heart does break, but it's meant to break Mm -hmm. a million billion times. It's almost its only purpose is to just keep breaking. And the breaking is actually just it expanding in love, expanding in understanding, expanding its its experience of its humanity. I don't think it's something we should ever be thinking we can stop or prevent. Mm -hmm. So to have that perspective, my heart is meant to break. Life makes it so. My whole life has been heartbreak. And not in a devastating way, in a very, very beautiful way to the point where I feel love like I'm just overwhelmed with love. So overwhelmed with love sometimes that I will be a puddle. But that's me understanding that it breaks and that it's meant to break. So I would encourage that perspective. These are the non-negotiables of life. When my little kid, he was about four, he decided he was going to have his first reckoning with his control and see how far he could take it. He said, I'm not going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to hold my body's functions back. And he made himself so sick, he would just keep putting food in and wouldn't let anything out. And he would sweat and hold it in and he would fight. He had his first reckoning, a very important one, where he met his control versus the control of the universe. So he had to meet his edge. And I love that. He learned that at four. It's like, I'm going to meet my edge. How much control do I have here? And his body's like, not much. Like, <laughs> you know, but he learned his first non-negotiable moment. You know, I went into his room. He's four years old. And I said, babe, you're not going to win. This is one of those things you can't get out of. This is part of life. So long as you have a body, so long as you're human, you go to the bathroom. Otherwise you're dead. Mm. So what do you want? You don't win. And he went, I know, mama. But he was trying. He was trying so hard. And I love that that was his first reckoning. But this is the same thing we do with heartbreak. We're like that little boy, that my little son. Like, I'm not going to have my heart broken. And it's like, yes, you are. So when that happens, how are you going to relate to it? What does your conversation with heartbreak look like? Do you fall into absolute despair? Or do you tease out the mercy and the beauty and the goodness of it. Do you become a bigger person because of it or do you become a smaller person? They're not easy experiences to have and they're not meant to be. I think they are literally there to keep breaking the heart open so that it doesn't calcify, Mm. but so that it opens. So you have a choice. You are a conscious participant in your life's unfolding. And when heartbreak comes, which is inevitable and non-negotiable, you have a very important choice to make. What is the conversation I'm having with this? Does it make me smaller or bigger? And how can I find a way to keep my heart open 
I have a lot of living examples in my life of people that have gone the alternative route, mostly older men that have refused to be anywhere near their hearts or vulnerability. And I have watched them die in a state of tremendous pain. So I hold that living example so close to me because it's like, that's my alternative. I can go to death feeling totally righteous and justified in my anger my whole life. Or I can actually try and look another way about this. I can try my best to find a way to be in a better, more nourishing, loving conversation with my life. I often, like in meditation, I won't get up from my sitting until the wound has run clear, meaning mm. until the conversation ends in a way that I feel nourished. And I think that's the difference for a lot of people. It's like they just keep living in the story of the pain. And I totally understand that we aren't taught any of this. This has been a landscape that I have had to walk mostly totally alone and in the dark. And luckily I've had people say, you're a pioneer, you know, give me those the strength to understand what's actually taking place. But just stay until the conversation is one that says, okay, just stay until the wound when runs clear. That's the only option you have, unless you want to go the other route, which I don't think you do. Yeah. Uh, do you ever get angry with life or even mm. in your darkest moments, think to yourself, because I know that you're a very spiritual being, why is this happening to me? And mm. why do I have to be the trailblazer? And couldn't it have been a little easier than this? Like, do, do you ever yeah. feel that? For sure. I've had moments like that, for sure. I had that recently. Or I, sometimes I get despairing, like, oh my God, I try so hard and I'm still in the same predictable behavioral pattern. Those are the ones that are the stickiest. You're like, oh, this isn't going anywhere. You know, it's been 20 years <laughs> and she's still kicking in there. So you can, I can get a bit despairing, but I've gotten really good at not staying there for long. So I use nature uh, all the time. When I lived in the city, there was just such a blunting of that communication with the natural world that I think that was largely responsible for my mm. depression. There was no real um, safe place for us to go to and have a direct connection with something that is actually working in harmony and balance. You know, it's pretty much our only example of that in the living world. But, you know, if I'm in that place, I'll go straight out to the forest. And I had it the other day when I was going to do another interview with someone and I was like, and I sat under my favorite tree and I was like, okay, what's here? And I just like looked and I saw the dark battling the light and I was watching it and it's like, I let myself have the expression of like, I will always be in this dark versus light battle in my being. I let myself feel like lowly and sad and I cried. And then I got that, that created the distance. So immediately that distance, then you're becoming the witnesser immediately. And you have this distance growing, growing, growing. And then I realized in that moment, oh my God, I'm holding both of these. I'm holding this argument in my awareness. So I'm not that argument. I'm the bigger awareness behind this. And I think that's the reason for the emotional heart. I think the emotional heart, the one that's experiencing the emotions, that's feeling all the pain, is there to actually signal like a siren call to go inside and not to get lost in the pain of our body, but to actually find that witnessing. Who's there? Who's here with me? Who's watching this? 
And each time you do that, you just like keep returning to yourself and your life and the conversations that are being had inside your body in a way that everything's heard, everything's looked at, everything's tended. You're not in denial. You're processing. You're in constant dialogue. And as you're doing that, you're just growing stronger and stronger in your spine of your God self. I wonder, Sarah, do you have a favorite poem or something that you just really like that you think would resonate with this conversation that you could share? She decided after waking from what felt like years of sleep that she would live forevermore wide open to all that came to be in front of her. She decided that living awake was a choice. And in that moment, she became free. And in that moment, she chose to be the beam of light that reaches toward all other life, to be the beam that assists the earth in breathing and loving others awake. Mm. And I wrote that early on when I was really becoming a writer, I would say. But that's really how I see it. It was like I was nursed back to life from all the stages and states of darkness to be a beam of light that now will assist others in coming awake. And the beauty of that is I didn't choose any of that. Mm. That was organized in the tissues of our bodies, I would argue. And the closest I've ever felt to my God self or creation or divinity or God, whatever you want to call it, the first impulse and instinct of my body is to share it. It's never to keep it to myself. It's always to spill it over everything and everyone. And that's in every single one of us. I wonder, Sarah, what's the best advice that you have ever been given? I think one of the best pieces of advice was from my dad. And I remember I was really struggling with myself around one of, you know, the question you just asked me, do you ever get despairing or angry at life? And I remember having that conversation with my dad because he's always a safe place to go to. And it's like, ah, I'm just, I can't get out of this. And I'm always here. And I remember him just saying, you have to mature. There's a spiritual maturity that you can't quick fix or get out of. And that word maturity, there's a maturity that comes with the spiritual life that you can't get away from. So basically he was saying, oh, my sweet daughter, you know, you're toiling, but you're maturing. So let yourself be in the broil of it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your greatest hope for society today? I think my greatest hope is that the heart will break so cataclysmically in all of us that um, we are all returned to the foundation of our essence. And I see that so, so much going on right now. Um, that it's just breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking. But if I can have any hope at all is to know how closely I have been with my heartbreak and where it does turn and transmute into. And my hope for society in the world is that that same law applies to everyone yeah. and not just me. But that's why I think we need so many voices and conversations happening that encourage that type of perspective, because I also understand Uh, my own, you know, kicking, spitting thing inside. And I know how scary it can be, especially, you know, I often think that 
oh, if I didn't at least have, you know, I had the whispers in my life around, you know, God and goodness and love. But if I didn't, I don't know mm. how you how you'd stand inside of all of that without those those at least those little pivots that you can make. So that's where my heart really aches because I know a lot of people don't have that conversation being held in their in their sphere and that's why I guess we have to stay here and speak as loudly as we can. Absolutely. What is a life of greatness to you? Mm, A life of greatness to me is meeting every single one of your edges and not falling back down into your smallness, I guess. So to me, it's like you're going to feel these pulls to speak more loudly to do more, to put your hands out to heal. You're going to feel those nudges and those instincts in your body. They're always going to be there. Try your very best to listen, no matter how afraid you are, no matter how terrified you are, knowing that you are being called from your future self and uh, just to explore that edge with a little curiosity as many times as you can, yeah. Sarah Blondin, you are a truly beautiful human. And this was (laughs) such a a divine conversation today. I I thank you very much for your advice and the wisdom that you shared. I'm truly grateful. Oh, thank you. It's so fun. Thank you. Thank my heart is like so warm. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode as well as many more and give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning love what you heard then we'd love you to hit subscribe on apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review it will help us share this wisdom with others for more episodes search a life of greatness podcast download the new listener app now and listen for free listener